Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke. And in this podcast series, I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice for your medical practice. In this episode, we're talking with an expert neurologist about the subject of strokes. It's estimated that more than 56,000 strokes will be experienced by Australians this year, both new and recurrent, and that half a million Australians are living with the effects of a stroke, which can be a major cause of disability. Up to 25% of stroke survivors are of working age. Strokes are the third leading cause of death in Australia, taking the lives of more women than breast cancer and more men than prostate cancer. And regional Australia is at a distinct disadvantage compared to metro statistically. Approximately 85% of strokes are ischemic infarcts, 15% are hemorrhagic. Of ischemic strokes, about 20% are cardioembolic, with atrial fibrillation being a major factor here. 20% are small vessel strokes or lacuna infarcts from the Latin word empty space. These occur in the deep cerebral white matter, basal ganglia or pons. The remaining are either thrombotic or embolic, often from the proximal internal carotid artery. Risk factors including hypertension, atrial fibrillation, hyperlipidemia, diabetes and smoking lead many to postulate that up to 80% of strokes can be prevented, with only 15 to 30% of strokes being preceded by a transient ischemic attack, otherwise known as a TIA. Apart from primary prevention, antiplatelet agents, thrombolytic treatment and clot retrieval are all part of the modern neurologist's armamentarium when it comes to stroke management and prevention. We are privileged today to be joined by Doug Crompton, Head of Neurology at Melbourne's busy Northern Hospital, whose passion, expertise and enthusiasm for this subject is evident for this conversation. Please welcome Dr. Doug Crompton. So, Dr. Doug Crompton, you're a neurologist, and I very much appreciate you making time to come out and see me today on Everyday Medicine. Thank Doug, you so much for having me. Thank you. You've come a long way, and um, you've got a very good reputation at Northern Hospital, um, which is why I have pursued you for some time <laughs> for, for a podcast series, really, it'll be on, on neurology, like such an important subject in medicine. Um, Doug, before we talk about um, cerebrovascular disease, which... Uh, strokes, which will be our topic today. Can I ask you about your journey into neurology? How, how did you get there? Certainly. So You're Scottish, I'm not Scottish. English. So I, I grew up in Edinburgh. Um, I, when I left school, although I uh, wanted to do medicine, my father, who was a chest physician in, in Edinburgh, still alive, still doing okay, um, was desperately keen to persuade me to do something other than medicine because he felt it was just too overwhelming a profession. You'd have no kind of uh, personal life. You'd have no recreational time. So I went off uh, and did a science degree first off, but uh, and then that got got me very interested in biological sciences, uh, and then followed that up with a PhD in molecular biology, doing looking at nervous system development in fruit flies. But when I came to the end of that, I had this difficult choice to make as to whether I accepted an invitation to go to Berkeley, California, to be a postdoc there in a very um, kind of high flying but high pressure laboratory environment, or whether I did what I really wanted to do, which was to go back to medical school. So that took me to Newcastle-upon-Tyne, where I went to medical school. Oh. And then I did yeah. my postgraduate training in, in and around the northeast of England. 
the decision for neurology um, <clears throat> was a little bit of an accident in some ways. Uh, I knew that I'd liked it. I did it. It was my one of my favorite specialties when I was a resident equivalent. But then I did a little bit of clinical genetics, um, thinking that that would be my uh, natural clinical oeuvre, given my research background. But I didn't really like the genetics. It was very, very slow. There was no inpatients. There was no emergencies. And uh, after about nine months of that, I got a, a call from the professor of neurology who, who said, you know, we've got some interviews coming up and we really want you to interview. So I thought, oh, well, well that's nice to be invited. I'll, I'll kind of, I enjoyed the neurology, so I went back to that. And then within neurology, um, I guess I, uh, I did my four years uh, initially in uh, neurology training in the UK, and then I came... Was that at Edinburgh? Too? That was in Newcastle. Newcastle. Um, yeah. In and around Newcastle. So Which two, has got the miniature Sydney Harbour Bridge. <laughs> That's exactly Nature right. City Harbour Bridge. Exactly right. Yes. Yes. So Newcastle upon Tyne for a couple of years also um, were on a sort of training circuit there that included Sunderland and Middlesbrough. And uh, during those years, I got, um, I had a bit of a difficult journey in some ways because although I had lots of mentors who were technically exceptionally good, accomplished neurologists, there weren't very many people that I wanted to be like, to be honest. But there was one uh, epilepsy specialist, uh, a terrific woman called Margaret Jackson, who's since retired, who was very, very patient-centered and very uh, kind. And I, I was kind of inspired by her. I was also inspired by the fact that at the time in the UK, a lot of epilepsy medicine um, was done by uh, non uh, specialists by well-meaning generalists and a lot of it was done badly and so since I came to Australia so I first came to Australia to do an epilepsy fellowship uh, in 2006 which was an amazing experience uh, at the Austin Hospital with Sam Berkovic and Ingrid Sheffer who were terrific mentors and remain excellent uh, mentors and friends today um, uh, so that, that, that first brought me to Australia and then we went back to the UK for a short time. I uh, had a consultant post between Newcastle and Middlesbrough, but uh, the quality of life in Melbourne was something that our family could never forget. You like the coffee? Oh, the coffee, <laughs> the sunshine, <laughs> and the kind of the, the friendliness of Melbourne mm. people mm. Uh, and the, the, the social responsibility. So we're, mm. we're sitting talking today uh, at a time when Victoria is now enjoying uh, its 36th or so day mm. of COVID mm. freedom. And I think that that says a lot about the kind of civic responsibility of mm. Victorians. Mm. And that is a very special thing and it's nothing to be taken for granted. And I think coming as, as an, uh, from elsewhere, mm. you really appreciate that side of, of mm. life in Victoria, life in Melbourne and life in Australia as a whole. Each state in Australia has very different culture. Indeed. You know, you know, I've trained in Queensland as well and I grew up in Tassie and uh, I, I would rather keep that reasonably quiet. I've only got one here, by the way. But... Uh, it's uh, each state's got a very different culture, and uh, Victoria's a standout. And so many beautiful things to see. You're, you're going to have a wonderful life here, I think, yeah. Doug. Um, that's a very polished background story, Doug. Uh, <laughs> no wonder the Northern they're lapping <laughs> you up with that sort of uh, you know your academic uh, profile is incredible. We don't get that general that sort of person here in medicine with that academic profile. Maybe with the Postgrad training, we're going to get that sort of person. But you know, in general, in medicine and Australia, we just enter into medicine. We don't have this story of having done science beforehand and uh, extensive studies and really understanding genetics. And you know, probably the postgraduate will bring that to us a bit. 
I, I think so. I, I, th- I certainly um, find our trainees an inspiration. They are so able and so energetic and so accomplished. Mm. Um, and they've trained in an era when the internet is, you know, means that, that information is limitless yes. and the only limiting factor is how much we can make mm. sense of. You can also read about unicorns on the uh, internet. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to filter it out, don't you? But, but you're right. Oh, my son's a medical student. And most of his work seems to be, you know, it's, on, it's online. It's quite extraordinary, you know. Uh, I hope he gets enough clinical uh, um, attention. But, yeah, no, that's, that's nice to hear that um, you feel highly about them. Uh, I'd like to, to talk a little bit about uh, what one of your special interests, which is in uh, strokes yes. today, if we can, because uh, it's estimated that 56,000 Australians will have a stroke this year, which, you know, and I think of stroke as being an incredibly sad and disappointing sort of endpoint almost, you know. And once someone's had a stroke, it's like, well, they're not the same person. May not be the same person anymore. Uh, and I feel terribly upset about about seeing patients who've had strokes. And uh, uh, to be honest, I'm a bit frightened about it all. And uh, I'd said that about half a million Australians are living uh, with the effects of a stroke, which is very substantial. Uh, it's the third biggest killer in Australia, Doug, which I yep. perhaps hadn't appreciated that it kills more people than breast cancer, more men than than prostate cancer. Um, and uh, I'm told also that, that in many cases, uh, I guess this is no great surprise, maybe up to 80%, we might have been able to prevent that stroke. T- tell us a bit about strokes. What should we know about it? So, I mean, I, I, I'm interested in, in your comments about finding stroke a, uh, a kind of devastating issue. And I think that that is, has been true, although the landscape has changed so much over the last few years that it's a really inspiring part mm. of medicine to, mm. be, yeah. to be involved in. Nowadays, um, particularly in ischemic strokes, where there's a blockage of an artery supplying part of the brain. And that, what, are, what percent would be ischemic? So uh, in the order of 75, 80% of strokes mm. have that etiology. Yes. Um, and then about 15% would be intracerebral hemorrhage. Mm. And another mm. 5% would be subarachnoid hemorrhage, mm. albeit that's a slightly you know, thought of as being a rather different entity because yes. the treatment is different and they tend to be looked after more by neurosurgeons than by neurology teams. Mm. So going back to the sort of 80 or so percent of stroke that is ischemic, we know that um, we now have very effective treatments as long as we can catch those people early. And when people have had a stroke and have got symptom onset that could be due to a stroke, and so appropriate symptoms would be usually either lateralized weakness, so facial weakness, limb weakness, often arm weakness and clumsiness, sometimes dysphasia, and it can be difficult for the uninitiated family members to recognize what is a language disorder and what is just some older person being non-specifically confused. Mm. Mm. Um, But we have some bigger difficulties recognizing posterior circulation strokes, which often will present with dizziness, sometimes with some posterior headache, often with vomiting, sometimes with double vision, and with some ataxia in the limbs, so some clumsiness in the limbs, which can be a little bit difficult to identify on initial assessment. So I think one of the difficulties just in recognizing stroke in the first place is in the area of posterior circulation strokes. And we have to recognize that about 10% of people who present with sudden onset dizziness will be having that due to a stroke. And we have to have sort of our Mm. stroke goggles on Mm. while we're assessing Mm. those people. But going back to the generality of, of stroke attendances, 
we can now um, offer some really important therapies for trying to reperfuse areas of brain that have lost mm. their blood supply. Um, thrombolysis is the treatment that has been going on for several years now. The evidence base uh, started in 1995 and has been added to uh, hugely ever since then. We know that uh, time is brain, and so uh, getting thrombolysis on board as soon as possible after people have had symptom onset is extremely valuable. But the uh, windows in which thrombolysis is helpful have been extended so we've known for some time that there's a four and a half hour window between symptom onset and thrombolysis treatment for which pretty much everybody will benefit. But when we select people with specialized imaging, we can actually extend that thrombolysis window in some people out to nine hours. And that's particularly important because it's quite common for people to wake up with stroke symptoms. And then the question is, well, when has that started? Mm -hmm. And so what we can now do is to use advanced imaging as a surrogate of having a clear onset time uh, and, and often we can treat people who wake up with ischemic stroke symptoms. Right, so is there a concern with uh, TPA or uh, strepto, any of the clot dissolving products that um, there might be hemorrhage? Is that the major concern? So if you leave it more than four hours or five hours and that's what you're looking for in imaging, is that the concern? Well, that's, that's absolutely right. So that's the, the concern is that although it's a very valuable treatment and <clears throat> we know that we will reduce disability substantially if we can restore perfusion to a part of the brain that's been deprived of blood supply, there is a, a gradually increasing risk of of hemorrhagic transformation. And we know overall thrombolysis has a risk of between one and 2% of having fatal right. intracerebral hemorrhage. Right. So that's the reason that mm. if people have got a very minor stroke, and we use the National Institutes of Health stroke scale to, mm. to turn a sort of stroke into a number, um, if people have got a minor stroke and on the NIHSS scale, that's usually a five or less, then we have to think very carefully about whether that person uh, is in a situation where the benefits of thrombolysis are likely to outweigh the risks. Now, even the, you know, we, we never want to distill things too much to a number. You know, you, you, part of uh, that scale, for example, would look at the function of your dominant hand and whether there's drift in your dominant uh, arm. And if you have a stroke that affects your dominant arm that becomes very clumsy, then that's a desperately debilitating stroke, even mm. if the number end up, ends up quite mm. low. Similarly, if you've got a stroke that's affected language. So we, we have to interpret not just the number, but also the syndrome and how it's likely to affect people if there is only modest recovery after that stroke. But certainly every uh, assessment is a risk and benefit assessment. But we know that uh, overall, if we catch people within four and a half hours, we've identified that there isn't an alternative cause for their symptoms. So in particular, that there isn't a hemorrhagic stroke, mm. but also that there isn't something unexpected like a tumor on the mm. imaging yeah. or like a subdural hematoma that might have evolved slowly. So we can, in that situation, we can identify that it's acceptably safe as long as people don't have other uh, issues that make uh, switching off their blood clotting in the short term very dangerous. So if people are on anticoagulants, yeah. warfarin or a DOAC, for example, yeah. then that would be an, an absolute contraindication. And sometimes there are other reasons that we aren't able to offer thrombolysis 
uh, including if people are, have very refractory hypertension, we have to manage to get people down to blood pressure thresholds less than 185 over 110 to be able to safely give thrombolysis. Again, because the hemorrhage risk is that right? That's absolutely right. So if the blood pressure is too high or they're on anticoagulants and there's occasional mm. other issues or if they've ever had an intracerebral hemorrhage in, mm. ever in their life or if they've got thrombocytopenia or if they're likely to have a clotting disorder from liver disease, for example, then all of these things are potential contraindications. Mm. Um, but for the most part, uh, it's a question of identifying that, that there is no other cause than ischemic stroke that has caused them to have acute symptoms and then getting the thrombolysis on board. Thrombolysis is on. So how accurate can you be in terming, determining the, the time of stroke? I was interested in you saying that. Yeah, so it's it, it, it's a difficult question because in some ways what we need to know is how rapidly are we losing the potential to benefit people by restoring blood supply. Mm. And in that regard, we've got amazingly... Uh, powerful imaging now and we're incredibly fortunate in Victoria to have this in pretty much every stroke uh, every hospital that sees acute stroke patients so we look at CT perfusion imaging and on CT perfusion we end up getting four beautiful color maps and then uh, some automated uh, interpretation of those color maps but the color maps are asked are telling us broadly two things that they're, they're saying how quickly is blood getting to different areas of the brain right. and in a perfect world mm. that would be you know pretty quickly all over um, but when you've had a stroke then there will be areas of the brain where the blood supply is 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 getting there still but getting there potentially very slowly there's a different question that we're looking at on some of our other color maps which is are there areas of brain where essentially the blood supply isn't getting to at all? And we can uh, extrapolate that to say that there are parts of the brain which are not now salvageable, and that okay. is what we would call the mm. infarct core, mm. and other parts of the brain which are in what we would call the ischemic penumbra, where there is a potential to restore that brain to pretty much full functioning if we can return the blood supply to normal. Mm-hmm. So. As strokes evolve, the penumbra is there from the start because usually there's a relatively static occlusion of a blood vessel and the core gradually gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, going back to your question, which is how can we tell how long ago the stroke happened? The answer is we can't quite because different people have strokes that evolve at different rates. And for some people, they would have relatively poor collateral blood supply, so there'd be no other way of getting blood to that territory of brain, and therefore that person would have a stroke that would evolve very quickly. Whereas for other people, they might have some quite strong collaterals, and therefore that part of the brain could uh, survive for very much longer. And that's the, the nuts and bolts of why in some people we can now offer thrombolysis for up to nine hours, where we can identify that there's still quite a big ischemic penumbra, there's lots of brain there to rescue. And similarly, we'll talk about clot retrieval in, yes. in a few minutes, but uh, in clot retrieval, we can in some circumstances still recommend that treatment right out to 24 hours after symptom onset, which is a game changer for those people uh, you know, in that sure category. Is. Sure is. Yeah. It does sound like patients need to be really sort of uh, sent, corralled to a, a specific stroke unit to to get this expertise and, and treatment because I, I imagine a lot of peripheral hospitals are not going to be able to offer this. 
type of uh, intervention or understanding? Well, th that's, I mean, as I say, in, in Victoria, we're very fortunate because um, we kind of strategize our, or, or uh, stratify our stroke services according to different tiers. And we have a thing called the Primary Stroke Centre, which is a, a centre that will be equipped to appropriately assess anybody with new onset stroke symptoms. And within Victoria, is this functioning, or is it? This is yeah, a, yeah, this is it's really? all, it's all very yeah, nothing about it. Yeah, no, we've got this very <laughs> organised, very organised <laughs> network, um, and the the primary stroke centres all in in Victoria, uh, all except I think one have access to uh, acute CT perfusion. Really? So if you're so, down at uh, Interlock or uh, you know Wataggy Hospital, Warrior Hospital, yep. uh, you know you're in the sort of a peripheral. Well, yes, you, you're, you're a long way out, but what we have, uh, and this has really uh, been, been uh, a wonderful service that's been developed by a number of people, including um, Professor Chris Bladen, who was formerly at Eastern Health, um, so that we have the Victorian Stroke Telemedicine Service, mm. which allows people to go to a peripheral hospital, um, have their stroke imaging done, and then they will call for a stroke specialist to then do a, do a telemedicine consultation involving looking at the imaging, talking to the patient and helping to support the clinician there who might only see you three strokes in a year yes. yeah. uh, to, yeah. to get guidance as to whether thrombolysis is appropriate yeah. or whether there's actually a, an indication for both clot thrombolysis retrieval. and mm. clot retrieval, mm. in which case they would that patient would need to be sent urgently to a clot retrieval uh, referral hospital. That's an excellent service. Doug, we're going to get to uh, clot retrieval in a moment, yeah. um, but it, just suppose a patient is at home and uh, the relative recognises, son or daughter recognises that their parent may be having a stroke. Do you, do you recommend half an aspirin taken immediately if that can be administered? It may not be possible. Is that recommended? Or, so or? We don't recommend it, um, and the rationale is that although we know that uh, from, from some older trials that overall, on average, you're not going to harm people on average by giving people half an aspirin. But if that, that person is actually having a hemorrhagic stroke, then yes. giving them half an aspirin at that point yes. is not a good idea. Also, quite a high proportion of acute stroke uh, can cause some difficulty with their swallowing muscles. Yes. And so... Actually, giving somebody another opportunity to aspirate Aspirin. before their it's just assessed too, and it's just too difficult to make the recommendation. Yeah, so we don't too, recommend too that anymore. Okay, so uh, we've talked there about um, thrombolysis, and yeah. what about clot retrieval? This is something I find fascinating because it's uh, it transforms the recovery. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, clot retrieval has been such an exciting evolution in stroke medicine. So we know that uh, around. 20% or slightly more of ischemic strokes will happen because a large artery is occluded. And those large arteries could either be the internal carotid artery or the middle cerebral artery. So that's the main branch of the internal carotid artery supplying blood to a large part of the anterior brain. Or it could be uh, an occlusion of the basilar artery. And in those situations, the, the clots involved tend to be very large, and we know that thrombolysis alone will only uh, dissolve a relatively small proportion of those clots. And when you see them actually being pulled, having been pulled out by the neurointerventionists, they're really quite big. You know, mm. you're getting bits, bits of clot that are an inch or two long, and it's not surprising mm. when you see them that, that medical therapy is just not really yeah. going to work yeah. for that. These patients tend to be people who have got the biggest and worst 
acute stroke syndromes. So often there will be people who have got hemiplegia, reduced conscious level in, in a many, often forced gaze deviation in one direction. And if they have had a stroke effect in their dominant hemisphere, they'll tend to be densely dysphasic. So that's for the people with the anterior circulation occlusions, either internal carotid artery or middle cerebral artery. Um, and for the people with the basilar artery occlusions, for the most part, they will present with reduced conscious level. And there may be some clues from the onset. Sometimes people might have some dizziness or some uh, limb weakness at the onset, uh, but often people will then present with reduced conscious level, potentially some bulbar signs. So things like dys, uh, dysarthria and uh, dys, dysphagia and mm. facial mm. weakness. Mm. So are, are those clots easy to see on imaging, Doug, or do you have to do anything, any special imaging uh, takes to, to see that? So we, we, what we tend to do now is to do what we refer to as our multimodal CT for all comers who present with possible strokes. So by multimodal CT, we mean an old-fashioned non-contrast CT, which is still a very, very important um, kind of basic uh, part of the stroke imaging. We also do CT angiography, looking at this, the blood vessels from the arch of the aorta to the vertex of the head, and we do our CT perfusion study. Now, for the people who have... Um, a large vessel occlusion, one of the great things about CT perfusion is that it highlights these um, uh, areas where the blood is not getting to, like a Christmas tree, and it's, it really lights up, makes it extremely obvious to us. And it's much more obvious on that imaging than it is on the relatively much more subtle um, uh, vascular imaging, so the angiography. It's also true to say that sometimes the clots are so big that we can see them as dense artery signs yeah. on the non-contrast CT. Mm -hmm. So um, can be a little bit subtle to spot on the on the CT angiograms, but usually the CT perfusion will actually guide us very quickly to the right place. So that 20% can be tackled with that as well. And how many hours, do, what, what's the, the leading time for that? So how we, long have we got? We know from trials back in time is brain. That, well, time is brain, so yes. we've, we, we have to you know, keep on going with all of these therapies. We go as fast as we can until mm. we've either uh, successfully achieved you know, delivery of the reperfusion mm. treatment or we recognize that we can't go any further. Mm. So um, th there, there is no kind of uh, time where people come in you know, only an hour after symptom onset and we think, oh, that's fine. You know, we, 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 we've got four and a half hours. Yeah. We can go and have, have a sandwich. cup of coffee. Um, so, but, but, but the, the uh, longest treatment windows that we have, uh, we know for all comers without CT perfusion guidance that if we can get somebody to a hospital for groin puncture prior to clot retrieval within six hours of symptom onset, then that on average will uh, confer a great benefit to that person. But outside six hours, we need to use our specialized imaging looking at CT perfusion to ask the question, how much penumbra is there? How much brain is there that will still survive if we can restore blood supply compared to how much core is there? How much brain is destined to die? Whatever we now do. And if we see that there is a lot of penumbra and a small core, then those people can still benefit from clot retrieval right up to 24 hours after the onset of their symptoms. That's, it's another nuance of medicine. This is a, uh, you know, so I love hearing about this sort of stuff. 
and how it's all advancing. That, that's incredible. It's life-saving. It really is. It's, it's absolutely transforming. Right. And, and the best thing about it is that, you know, these are the strokes that you, that make you stroke-phobic from your, your kind of medical school yes. days. Yes, yes. Um, yes. And, and make so many people stroke-phobic because they're devastating. Yes. They're terrible. Yes. I remember as a medical student in the northeast of England, um, you know, seeing these poor, poor people mm -hmm. who had dense right hemiplegia were mm -hmm. totally aphasic and, and their the, lives the were yeah, devastated. And the whole families. It's such an impact, yeah. isn't it? That, that, this is transforming. That, that still happen, yes. but we've got a very, very effective yes. treatment as long as people present. And of course, the problem with ischemic stroke is for the most part, it doesn't hurt. And so we still see yeah. a lot of people who uh, are in less kind of health literate backgrounds yes. Yes. and will think, oh, I, you know, I know that my arm wasn't working and I, I didn't try speaking because I was yes. by myself. But uh, I thought if I go to bed and, uh, you know, and wake up a few hours later, maybe it's all going to be okay. And that doesn't work very well, in my experience, for, for sorting out acute stroke. With the clot retrieval, do you do thrombolysis as well? Let me ask you that question. Yeah, so at, yeah, at the yeah. moment, the, the evidence is very much in favour of thrombolysis and mm -hmm. clot retrieval. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we are referring patients, so there's only two hospitals in the state at the moment in Victoria that accept people from other hospitals for clot retrieval, uh, and that's currently um, Royal Melbourne Hospital and Monash Medical Centre. Mm -hmm. And um, so when we are sending patients over to one of those hospitals, and from the northern we send people to Melbourne, um, then we will start the thrombolysis and have the thrombolysis uh, running while those patients are travelling uh, with the lights and sirens, urgent ambulance down to Royal Melbourne. Um, so and, and, and we sort of slightly glibly call that drip and ship. <laughs> um, so there's a couple of other things I'd like to ask you about. Um, I was going to make a little pun there about drip and ship, but uh, I, won't, <laughs> I won't go any further with that. Uh, there's this acronym called FAST. Yes. That, that's, um, it, that's really more for sort of public education. Do you think the public are aware of that, looking uh, at the science, uh, face, arm, speech, and then T, to who being time? Do, how, is there enough public education, do you think, about how to... to to, to get services very quickly for someone who, as you say, is presenting with early signs of a stroke? Um, it's a difficult, always difficult to know when there is enough. Uh, I think that the FAST campaign, when it was first implemented, was very effective as a public mm. health mm. Uh, exercise. Um, but the problem is that, you know, we, we, like with all education, you have to keep on doing it yes. and you have to keep on sort of banging that drum. Yes. Um, so uh, my, my experience is that a lot of people are brought very carefully and quickly to hospital because mm. a family member will recognise that something might reflect the onset of a stroke. Mm. Um, but you know, the, the, for all of the, well, for every two or three people we see in that category, we see somebody else that presents two days after their stroke that would have been very treatable two days ago. Um, so I guess the answer is we're, we're not quite getting through to everybody, uh, and uh, but, but but I think it has been a very effective campaign, and it certainly needs to continue. Doug, I'm pummeling you with questions. Can I keep on going? Of course, for, for, for a moment or two. Um, we've got we've talked about uh, thrombolysis and uh, clot retrieval. And we've got all these risk factors that come into play. So there's a big subject, isn't it? Hypertension and Indeed. diabetes and lipidemia and smoking and, yep. and so forth and so forth. Um, what, in general practice, what, what should the general practitioner be sort of thinking about? Oh, I didn't mention the, the, the elephant room, atrial fibrillation, of course, with thrombotic stroke being, I think I'm, it's responsible for, what, maybe up to 15% of strokes yep. or so? Yep. Yeah, you know, it's a very important problem and the cardiologists are all over that with their anticoagulation. But what should the GP be sort of, thinking about in terms of helping to prevent a stroke from occurring 
What, what do they need to be doing? So, you know, you, you've gone through a really nice little checklist for, for, for our primary care colleagues. And, and I think many GPs are brilliant at this. Mm. So making sure that people are getting general good health advice, so not smoking and getting, mm. getting some specific guidance as to how to help them stop, um, making sure that diabetes is identified and as well managed as possible. And, and still there is uh, an enormous issue about hypertension because mm. we know that you know, um, a lot of people are out there, even when they've been identified as being hypertensive and they might be on a single antihypertensive agent, and such a high proportion of people with hypertension actually need more than one medication. And when I see people who come to hospital with mm. three or four antihypertensives, mm. I, my mm. first thought is they've got a terrific GP because, mm. you know, we, we, we recognize that a lot of mm. a lot of people do need multiple antihypertensives. So the, the uh, hypertension management, terribly important. And I also uh, often will encourage people to actually have their own blood pressure monitoring machine at home because there's all sorts of data that tell us that a 24-hour blood pressure monitor or worse still just having your blood pressure monitored when you go and see your GP and you're on your Sunday best, mm. um, you know, these measures of blood pressure are not very reflective of normal blood pressure. And mm. so uh, if somebody has their own blood pressure machine and writes down what the numbers are and then uh, goes for a consultation with lots of data to back up a decision, uh, it's very, very much better. Um, so other things, uh, we know that uh, for primary prevention, we don't tend to recommend antiplatelets any longer, but certainly for secondary prevention, antiplatelets and but, other medications are very important. Why not for, for primary? Uh, I think, the, I mean, the evidence now says that... Uh, just a bit weak. It, it's just a bit weak, and we've recognised that the increased risk of intracerebral hemorrhage from aspirin mm. is mm. Si significant. Mm. And so unless we have got a definite identified ischemic vascular risk, mm. then uh, overall the benefit of aspirin is not there. It's not hard to, it's hard to understand that one. I find that hard to understand. Yes, but well, that's, that's where the evidence base currently lies. And, okay. uh, yeah. Secondary prevention? So secondary prevention is a very different issue. And mm -hmm. if we're looking at secondary prevention after a stroke or a TIA, then <clears throat> we now would tend uh, for either a high-risk TIA or a relatively minor stroke, we would give people dual antiplatelets, so a mm -hmm. combination of clopidogrel and aspirin, for only three weeks. And then we would revert to a single antiplatelet. And the three weeks comes from a meta-analysis of mm. a couple of enormous trials, the CHANCE mm. trial and the POINT trial, um, demonstrating that all of the benefits seems to accrue in preventing early recurrence of stroke or myocardial infarction, but the risk is uh, over a much longer time frame, and actually three weeks is, seems to be the ideal sweet spot where you get the most benefit and the least risk. Um, if people had previously not been on aspirin, we would then drop the clopidogrel and keep them on aspirin monotherapy. If people had been on aspirin and had then had a stroke or a TIA nevertheless, then we would switch over to clopidogrel. If people had already had a stroke on clopidogrel, then the evidence as to what to do is much less clear. <laughs> yeah, well, there's always little complications in it. Uh, place of warfarin and the DOAX. Well, the other thing to mention before I forget to is the place of statins. Yes. So mm. um, the, the, our, our absolute uh, bare minimum for somebody having mm. an ischemic cerebrovascular mm. event would be antiplatelets 
and uh, plus a statin. Uh, plus a statin. Is that evidence very strong for the statins? Yeah, evidence is very strong, and particularly mm. for using 80 milligrams of atorvastatin, except for people who are very old and frail or have mm. significantly mm. reduced renal function or liver function. But the opening gambit should be atorvastatin at 80 milligrams. And we know that in, in the acute phase, the, the re risk reduction of just antiplatelets and high-dose atorvastatin is very substantial in the order of 70% of early uh, re recurrence of stroke and uh, TIA is prevented by just those simple therapies. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Mm. The, the warfarin and uh, so no, the warfarin. Right. So, so whenever we see somebody with a stroke, we're always you know, and I, I always say this to our, our customers that we have two things to do. We have to help them to recover from the stroke, and we have to do everything we possibly can to prevent another one from happening. And so, we're always looking for other opportunities for secondary prevention. And one of the big issues is identifying atrial fibrillation. It's absolutely clear that mm. uh, in mm. broad terms that paroxysmal atrial fibrillation mm. is just as big a risk as persistent atrial fibrillation. Mm. The problem becomes, what about when we're doing longer and longer term monitoring, for example, with loop mm. recorders, how long a paroxysm is actually paroxysmal mm. atrial fibrillation? If I have five minutes of AF in a year, mm. then intuitively that's unlikely to confer as much risk as me being in AF half of the time. Yes. But, but um, that complexity aside, we're very uh, set on looking for atrial fibrillation, and that's with inpatient monitoring in the acute phase, often with a halter monitor. Uh, and then if we can't identify atrial fibrillation, but we have seen people who seem to be having embolic strokes for no other good reason, then although we do recognize that a lot of those will, for example, come from little bits of plaque from the aortic arch, um, we keep on looking for atrial fibrillation because if we find atrial fibrillation, then we've got this amazingly powerful treatment yes. uh, by using a DOAC to reduce the yes. further recurrence risk by about 65 or so percent. And the AF tracts are large or often indeed, fatal within it, a year, 25% of the time. Uh, yeah, we, we recognize that stroke mm. in a uh, association with atrial fibrillation, those strokes tend to be larger. Mm. Their emboli from the left atrial appendage tend to be yes. quite meaty. So, so is there any place for using a for warfarin or a, a DOAC for non-AF associated thromboembolic strokes, so, non-cardio embolic strokes? Surprisingly, not. Mm. Um, and it was a very, very reasonable question to ask um, if you have an isolated uh, uh, stroke without atrial fibrillation, so what we call embolic stroke of uncertain source or yeah. ESAS, yeah. Um, then that, you know, the, the, it's logical to infer that maybe a lot of that is because of atrial fibrillation that we can't spot, uh, in which case if we just anticoagulate people anyway, surely that would that would confer benefit. And surprisingly, uh, a couple of large trials have demonstrated that that doesn't confer benefit. So uh, overall, unless we can actually identify atrial fibrillation, then we're not helping people by giving them stronger anticoagulation. Doug, that's a wonderful run through strike. I think I could keep talking to you for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to take up some sure of your time, not, actually. Not uh, Doug, very quickly, very quickly, your spare time. Oh, this is intense medicine that you're practicing here. <laughs> uh, what, what do you do in your spare time? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm blessed with a wonderful family and I love spending time yeah. with them. So I've got my uh, amazing wife and three kids uh, and, a, and a lovely dog. Uh, I like to run. Uh, I, I certainly find well, you look that, fit. You well, look I, fit. I, I certainly find that 
um, you know, exercise helps me to stay yes. kind of clear-headed and, uh, you know, the anxieties mm-hmm. of everyday work seem to be a bit more manageable if uh, yeah. if you've got a, decent, a few kilometres under your belt before you before breakfast. <laughs> um, well, enjoy, enjoy the rest of the day too. And thank you so much for joining me today. That's a great pleasure. Thank Thanks you. for the invitation. Thank, thank you. Thank you for joining me in that conversation with Doug Crompton. I just loved his energy and enthusiasm and passion for this subject. I'm reminded by one of Oliver Sacks' quotes. If a man has lost a leg or an eye, he knows he has lost a leg or an eye. But if he's lost himself, himself, he cannot know it because he's no longer there to know it. Doug really is changing the lives of patients with acute neurological events from CVA and it's such a privilege to have joined him today. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au.